Well, if you would, would you please stand for the reading of God's uh, word? We're this morning beginning a study of Samuel. And uh, the, God has given us uh, this history, um, not simply to inform us about what he's done in the past, and that most certainly is true, but uh, also to reveal to us his uh, ways. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we uh, do ask that uh, this might be for us what in fact it is, the Word of God, and that you might speak to us individually, personally, uh, collectively, corporately. Give us grace to attend to what you'd say to us today, for we ask in Christ's name, amen. There was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraithite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penaniah. And Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up, year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. And on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penaniah's wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her because the Lord had closed uh, her womb. And so it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, uh, she used to provide uh, for her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And after they'd eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him a to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart before the Lord, and Eli observed her mouth, excuse me, Uh, Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, her voice was not heard. Therefore Hannah took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early the next morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. 
And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah didn't go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Not only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she'd weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. And they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. You may take your seats. Life is painful. And I want to use a very technical definition of pain uh, this morning. Pain is either having what you don't want or not having what you do want. And in a fallen world where things are disordered, where things are not the way they should be, pain is inevitable. You can waste your pain. How how can you do that? Well, you will waste it if you do not believe God has designed it for you. It won't do to simply say God has permitted this. Um, He permits it. He permits it with a reason. And if you don't believe that God has designed it for you, uh, then you will waste your pain. The thought that God has designed uh, the difficulties and the sufferings that come into our lives is affirmed in many places in the Bible. You know the story of Job. It's one of the places that it's uh, plainly taught. Yes, you know the story. Uh, Satan appears in the heavenly court And uh, God points out uh, Job to him. He says, "Uh, look at this man. There's nobody like him. And Satan says, the only reason he obeys you is that you bless him. You You treat him well because he obeys you. But if you take away all that good stuff he has, then he'll curse you to your face. Well, of course, you know this story. God gives Satan permission to uh, take from Job uh, everything but his health. And Job uh, responds, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And the end of the book, the same thing's affirmed. When God restores to Job, it says, he is comforted in all the evil that the Lord has brought 
upon him. If you don't believe your pain is designed by God, you'll waste it. And you'll waste your pain if you believe it's a curse and not a gift. Jesus Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you don't believe that, you'll lose sight of the gospel, and you will grow bitter. It will be hard for you to actually believe that God is up to something for your good in your pain. And you'll waste your pain if you withdraw from other uh, people, if you isolate, if you pull into a shell. Paradoxically, it is when you move out into relationship with other people in your pain, in your weakness, that other people find strength. You actually strengthen other people. And you will waste your pain if you grieve as those who have no hope. If you allow yourself to slide into darkness and passivity and turn away from God. You will waste your pain if you don't turn toward God in it. Now, in our text this morning, Hannah does not waste her pain. She turns toward uh, God, and we find that God remembers her in her pain. And uh, Hannah, as she faces her uh, pain, shows us why we should hope as well uh, for God to meet us in ours. So let's begin with her story. Um, The chapter opens with a certain man, and we're told a great deal about him. We're told not only his name, but... uh, his family, and where he lived. And the very length of the description tells you that he was a prominent uh, man. He's a man who has uh, two wives. His first wife, Hannah, who's loved very much, was barren. She couldn't have children. And so he took a second uh, wife, uh, Penaniah, and she did produce children. Now, for Hannah, this was a great uh, tragedy. It's not simply that she didn't have what she desired. It was, in fact, to her shame that she couldn't uh, produce a son. A son was necessary to carry on the family name. A son was needed uh, to carry on the inheritance for it to be passed down to him. A son was necessary to provide for them in their old age. You see, she was not able to do what was expected of every married woman in her day. And then we're taken uh, to a scene that happens year after year in their lives. So Elkanah is a godly man, and he takes his uh, family uh, to Shiloh every year. Now, at Shiloh, God's box and God's tent are there, the ark and the tabernacle. And they go there uh, to offer sacrifices. They shared a fellowship uh, meal. And Elkanah would give portions to all his family. And he would give a double portion to Hannah because he loved her. And they're, uh, as they're having this meal, Penaniah, Hannah's rival, would provoke her. She would taunt her. She would remind her that 
I have children and you don't. You know, uh, she might have even said on some occasion, uh, oh, Hannah, have I told you I'm pregnant again? When will you ever be pregnant? Do you think that'll happen to you? And so uh, she was not only uh, shamed, but she was in great uh, distress. Elkina tried to comfort her. Um, he said, aren't I more to you than ten sons? And uh, for Hannah, actually, frankly, the answer would, to that would have been no. His words show that he doesn't understand uh, her pain. He can't relate to her uh, pain. After all, he solved his problem. He married another woman, and now he has a son. But for Hannah, that only increased her pain. She wouldn't have this rival in her household if she was able to have children. She wouldn't be taunted if she wasn't barren. And this went on for year after year. And Hannah, uh, on one occasion, entered into the tabernacle and she poured out her heart uh, to God in all her distress. The high priest, Eli's there. And uh, he thinks she's drunk. Now, in the fellowship meal, it's probably on more than one occasion, a worshiper had too much to drink. And he assumes that's uh, uh, what's happening. And it's just at this point I want to pause the story because we learned something that's difficult about being in pain. Elkanah doesn't understand his wife's pain and Eli isn't discerning enough to recognize her pain as she's in worship. And this is often our experience. The very people we would think would notice our pain, the very people that we would expect could empathize with us in our pain, uh, who would enter into it are oblivious. In fact, they may even seek to avoid us. And this is one of the things uh, we uh, should not do uh, to others. We should seek, uh, to the degree that we can, to enter into their pain, to be understanding of the pain uh, that they're experiencing in uh, life. Uh, it's so important for us not to hide our pain from each other, uh, to come and think, well, we must always have a happy face. Part of what it means to be the family of God is that we can be honest about our struggles and uh, receive uh, the care and encouragement and support uh, from others here in the body of Christ. Hannah uh, explains, in fact, that uh, she's in great distress and that she's been praying. And Eli speaks a word of assurance to her whether it's a prayer or a prophetic utterance, I don't know. But uh, he promises that God has heard her and she leaves no longer sad. She believes that she's heard, she's consoled, and she eats. Hannah asked God to remember her, and God did. She conceives and Samuel is born. Now, God had not forgotten Hannah. And in the Old Testament, when you read that God uh, remembers, it means that uh, his memory of us is consistent with his promises. That out of his faithfulness, he will take action uh, for uh, us. 
he hears us and uh, will be moved to do something. Hannah doesn't waste her pain. And we can uh, see how not to waste ours as well. Hannah's pain in her barrenness uh, was great. It was a tragedy. It was devastating uh, for her. Uh, But she knew who had caused it. In fact, our text twice says the Lord closed her womb. Uh, She believed uh, that God was in the midst of what she was experiencing, and that's why she comes uh, to talk uh, to him. You see, she doesn't uh, complain to her husband. She doesn't isolate from people. Uh, She's provoked, and she doesn't retaliate. Uh, She doesn't make all the people around her uh, miserable. She didn't stop coming uh, to worship because she was in pain, although that had to be hard uh, for her, and undoubtedly she was tempted. She was grieved, but not hopelessly so. She felt the pain of loss intensely, but didn't uh, move away from God, but rather moved toward him. God designs our pain to move us uh, back to himself to set us seeking him. Our discomfort, the losses, those events that intrude into our contentment or our happiness are God's way of prodding us, of prodding our hearts into an earnest pursuit of himself. You'll waste your pain if you don't seek to know God better in the midst of it. If you don't seek to become more intimate with him. The great question for us in our pain is this. Will our vision of happiness of life uh, be so important to us that it will outweigh the value of knowing God? Well, your picture of what a good life will be will be so much more important to you that if God doesn't give it to him, you'll turn your back on him. You'll pull away from him. You see, this is the very question that the book of Job actually raises. The devil comes and says to God, you know, Job only serves you because you've blessed him immensely. Take away that blessing and he'll stop showing you. I just want to show you what he's really uh, made of. And you know, really most of us, that's how we start the Christian life. Many of us, if we came to Christ as an adult, we came because there was some sense of emptiness, some lack of purpose. Uh, Often, very often, it's some great painful event uh, that jars us uh, out of of our complacency and sets us to wondering uh, what in life is uh, worthwhile, what's uh, meaningful, what's worth uh, living uh, for. And so we sort of uh, expect uh, that God, uh, when we come to him, he's going to give us good things. In other words, what the devil's saying to God is, Job's in a transactional relationship with you. He obeys you for what he can get out of you. And actually, we need to ask ourselves, are we in a transactional relationship with God? And that question comes to us in a pointed way when we suffer. Because in our suffering, one of the things that's exposed is why it is that we are following Christ. Why is it 
that uh, we come to church? Why is it we try to do what pleases him? Is it because we expect his blessing? Because we expect life to go better for us? Is that why we're doing it? When you turn to God and pour out your heart, that's, that's where you begin to take the steps not to waste your pain. And we see in Hannah, Hannah is our, our, our schoolmaster in this. She's our teacher about this. Um, she comes in the midst of great distress and she pours out her heart uh, to God. Uh, she doesn't hold anything uh, back in her uh, distress. And um, she uh, expresses how much uh, it hurts, how devastating it is for her, and how deeply she desires its remedy. The book of Psalms is full of instruction and encouragement, just like Hannah's. In fact, Hannah became my hero at one point in my life for some uh, years uh, I was wrestling with the circumstances God had placed in me. And uh, for years, I went to God and said, please change my circumstances. Well, after a number of years, I changed my prayer to this. God, either give me a content heart or change my circumstances. And I remember clearly the day I was in my study on my knees and I had prayed and I had this sense that I'd been heard. I don't have that sense very often, but I just had this sense that I'd been uh, heard and I got up from my prayer thinking I'd been heard. Now, it was a year later before God did anything. And this is what I saw in in Hannah's uh, life. And I want to encourage you She didn't waste her pain, and don't you. Turn to God in your pain. Now, if we're not going to waste our pain, we have to face up to something, and it's plainly taught many times in the Bible, and it's right here. God doesn't act when it's in his power to do so. God has closed Hannah's womb. He knows she's devastated. Uh, And you need to keep in mind, Hannah and her family, they're godly people. And Hannah, no doubt, had asked many times uh, for children. And God seemingly had ignored her. Uh, uh, God seemed deaf. It felt like to her he'd abandoned her. God seemed as insensitive as her husband and the high priest. And this is where Hannah's story and our stories intersect. Because there are those times when God doesn't act and we think he should. When we are desperate for him to do something and he doesn't do anything at all. And know this, that when that happens, God is up to something. And there are two clues here in our text. The first is this, that... um, This story begins, the book of Samuel begins with a barren woman. And Hannah is in a select uh, group of barren women in the Bible. Sarah, 
and Rachel and Manoah's wife. All three of these stories were told that God closed their wombs only to open them after much time and grief. Now, Abraham and Jacob share one more uh, common thing uh, with Elkanah. Um, uh, they had domestic conflict between their wives. Um, now, they experienced the tragic effects of polygamy in their households. Now, the Bible does not endorse polygamy, um, although it was commonly practiced for wealthy men uh, to engage in it, as wealthy men do today. Maybe they don't marry, but they have a mistress. Um, and, but the Bible clearly teaches in the book of Genesis, and Jesus reaffirms this, that God's plan is one man and one woman. That's God's best. But the Bible doesn't moralize as it tells the stories of real people. It just lets the reader see the consequences. And uh, the Bible assumes that you as the reader have some understanding of what God has said about these things. Don't let this confuse you that God doesn't come along and every time he narrates uh, uh, something that's happened, he doesn't say, don't do this. The Bible, the history of the Bible is not a, a, a book full of morals. It's a story of redemption, of people who aren't good, who need a redeemer. Now, each of these births, Isaac, Joseph, and Samson, each time God opens the womb of these women, something big is happening. And God likes to take our total inability as his starting point to do big things. Our hopelessness and our helplessness are no barrier to his actions. The second clue that something big is happening here is this. If you've ever read uh, through Samuel, 1 Samuel, you know that the book is primarily about three men, about Samuel, Saul, and David. But the book doesn't start with a man. It starts with a powerless, barren ordinary woman. Now Hannah's son Samuel will be a giant of a man. He will be Israel's last judge. He will actually set the pattern, the mold for all the future uh, prophets, and he will be a kingmaker. He will anoint uh, Saul and David. This pain in God's delay is the way that God draws attention uh, to his launching a new era in his plans for the world out of the hopelessness and helplessness of a single woman. God directed Hannah's life so that she played a crucial role. She's the mother of the kingmaker. And if an incident like this in the life of an ordinary woman can play such a significant part in God's plan, then each day that you and I live can be a significant part of God's plan, even if we don't have insight into exactly what that place is. You will waste your pain if you don't see it as a gift, if you don't see that God has sent it and that he has a purpose in it. If you know there's a purpose, even if you don't know exactly what it is, 
you will be able to bear under it. But if you think it's utterly pointless, it'll be very difficult uh, for you to gain anything from the pain that you're in. There's something further here to note about God's purposes. Uh, uh, In her faithful response, Hannah's faith is evident in her pain. And this is what Paul's getting at in Romans uh, 5, when he says, suffering produces endurance, which in turn produces character and character hope. Now that word character that Paul uses, it's a very special word. And strictly speaking, it emphasizes uh, this complex thought that there's a, a quality being proven and approved by an interested party. The tested characters like gold, and the party who's interested in seeing tested character is God. God's the one who's looking for endurance and character displayed through it in the midst of suffering. And the reason why this proven character brings about hope is not that you uh, have confidence Uh, uh, that the joy and glory of Christ will be yours because you've done so well in the midst of your trial. No, it's rather that through uh, the trial, you've come to see that in fact it is God uh, who has met you. It is God who has given you faith. That it is God who has strengthened you so that you can pass through the test that he himself has imposed. The very patience we're to exhibit is a gift from him. And what it does is it undermines our cynicism and our unbelief, which we're prone to most, particularly when we're in pain. And God advances uh, his purposes here in a way that exceeds our pain. This was true uh, for Hannah. Uh, She sees in God's absence and God's seeming insensitivity in, uh, and his lack of action, uh, his remembering and his not only giving her uh, a child as she requested, but actually, as we'll see in the next chapter, three more sons and two daughters. God gives her more than she asked for. And this is the very nature of grace. This is true for Jesus. Jesus suffers greatly, doesn't he? He takes upon himself our sin, our rebellion, our guilt, our ingratitude. And Jesus opens up a fountain of grace that's far greater than our transgressions, far greater than the curse uh, that he absorbed and bore on the tree. This is what uh, Paul's driving at in Romans 5 when he says the free gift is not like the trespass. The blessings and righteousness that Christ has gained for us far exceed the consequences of our sin. Jesus, uh, out of his poverty, bestows riches on all who call on him. Jesus, out of his dying, uh, brings forth everlasting life. Uh, God brings forth more good out of our suffering than we can imagine. So that Paul can say our suffering is light 
and momentary and not to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed. You'll waste your pain if you don't look for God's purposes in it. Now, in Hannah's helplessness, pain and hopelessness, she's driven to ask. She's asking for a remedy uh, to her uh, pain. And in verses 27 and 28, there's a word plan. It's very difficult to bring out actually in in English because you just can't say this uh, with the word. But the word for ask in Hebrew uh, can mean two things. Um, uh, uh, And if we were to translate this in a very wooden way, what Hannah says is this. For this child I prayed, and the Lord gave me my asking which I asked from him, and I also have given back what he has asked to the Lord. All the days he lives, he's the one that is asked for from Yahweh. See, Hannah asks, and she's actually given far more than she expected. She's not just given a son, she's given the kingmaker, the one who will anoint uh, David. And in Hannah's asking for a remedy, actually God is giving the people of Israel more than she ever imagined. You need to understand that the book of Samuel opens on the very heels of that dark picture at the end of the book of Judges, where everyone is doing what's right in their own sight. Israel is a nation that's in great distress. Um, It cannot unify It cannot defend itself. It can't walk in the covenant with God. And its leaders are corrupt. It's a distressing situation for anyone uh, that was seeking to walk with God. And God's remedy for Hannah's distress is, in fact, also the remedy for Israel's distress. For Samuel is not only the remedy to her pain, but is the beginning of the remedy for Israel's pain as he sets apart and anoints David. David will be the king after God's own heart. David's greater son, the Lord Jesus, is God's remedy for the brokenness and barrenness of this world. You see, we can't make life work. We're not capable of making life work work on our terms with our strength. God's left this brokenness in the world to drive us toward himself, away from thinking uh, that we can uh, create a little Eden, a little uh, paradise uh, for ourselves. God comes in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to us as our, in our helplessness. He's the final redeemer. And sometimes when we pray for remedy, sometimes our prayers are so big that the answer to them can only take place at the end of human history when the Lord Jesus comes back and brings his kingdom in all its fullness. Jesus is the one who comes to us in our helplessness and hopelessness. He gives the blind sight. He makes the lame to walk. 
He gives the despondent uh, poor uh, a lifting up. He raises the dead. He is the remedy to our sin-saturated, cursed world. Jesus is the final remedy. Will you come to him this morning? Will you come to him whether you're in pain or whether life is pleasant for you at the moment? I can assure you that more pain awaits you in this life. So come to him. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, we thank you. You are the remedy. We thank you that that remedy's begun now. And we look forward to the day uh, when we see the resurrection cure all that's wrong in this world. Whether it's the brokenness of our bodies or the brokenness of our relationships or the brokenness, uh, Lord, that we see around us in society. Lord, you are our hope, and we come to you now. We place our trust in you, turning especially